Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we are in a section of the gospel that focuses on the authority of Jesus Christ. And our passage is Matthew chapter 9. The title of our sermon today is Jesus has authority over death. No slides today. Jesus has authority over death. Uh, Just over 22 years ago, something historic happened that... um, Kind of crazy for me, some of you aren't old enough to remember or to know about, but many of you will have remembered 22 years ago, something happened that relatively few people in history get to experience, the turning of a new millennium, Y2K, year 2000, if you are not familiar. Those of you old enough to remember might remember the barrage of information and speculation that accompanied that event. Retrospective looks back through history and of course most prominently wild end of the world speculation. Some of you were cover, you know, I don't know, hiding down in bunkers that night or something maybe and It was an interesting moment in history, and in those days, the National Catholic Report, which is a publication, sponsored an art contest to see who could paint the most compelling portrait of this subject, the Jesus of the next century. Century, century, century. NPR interviewed the sponsor, someone from the National Catholic Report, and here's what they said. Artists are forward-looking people. As we consider who Jesus might be and where Christianity might be going in this next century, we thought an artist might have the answer. So a quest was begun for a new image of Jesus that would be relevant, appropriate, and helpful for the new century. The winning portrait was entitled Jesus of the People. NPR interviewed the artist to explain to them the theme was inclusivity. They went on to say, I wanted to create an image that reminded us to love each other and celebrate our differences. And the sponsor, almost giddy with himself, jumped in saying, perhaps this Jesus will inspire us to work together to solve our problems. Perhaps this Jesus, which the discerning listener may ask, as opposed to which other Jesus? Are we talking my Jesus, your Jesus? You see, whatever good intentions the sponsor might have had, his faith was not in the authoritative portrait of Jesus that comes to us from Scripture, but was in the rendition of Jesus from this artist's mind. And it could be easy for us at this moment to turn around and bash that sponsor and whatever he was thinking, you know. But is that not what we do all the time? Remake Jesus a little more in our own image? We think up a Jesus that, surprisingly, maybe suspiciously, values what we value would respond to things the way we would respond to them, 
is interested, what we're interested in, acts like us, thinks like us, values like us. We make Jesus in our own image. We craft an image of him that is easy for us to understand or useful to us in a situation or that caters to our agendas or our desires. And so it's an interesting question to pose to yourself. If you were to create a portrait of Jesus, what would he look like? I don't mean this so that we can all know what the Jesus of the next century can look like, but how do you conceive of Jesus? Or maybe more interestingly, it'd be good to ask, what circumstances in your life right now, what desires in your heart right now are shaping the way you see Jesus? Shaping your expectations from Jesus. Our text today presents to us a fresh portrait of Jesus. But this isn't some artist rendition. This is not just somebody's impression of who Jesus might be. No, this is an inspired portrait, one carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit to reveal to us something of the glory of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us the real Jesus, and it calls from us a response. This portrait of Jesus challenges our conception of Jesus, and this portrait of Jesus graciously corrects our misconceptions of Jesus. So let's read this passage. I invite you to begin marveling with me at the portrait of Christ that is presented here. We are in Matthew chapter 9, looking at verses 18 through 26. Please follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. While he, being Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. All right, may the Lord bless now the preaching and the believing of his word. Through chapters 8 and 9, Matthew has been painting the portrait of Jesus for us led by the Holy Spirit. He's giving us a a true image of the Savior with a focus on his authority. And so the portrait of Jesus today uh, features his authority on or even over death. And there are really three scenes of this passage, and so that's how we want to proceed through it. We're going to look at each scene in its turn, and then we will consider two things 
that we learn about Jesus from this passage. So, scene number one, scene number one today. Look with me again at verse 18. While he, being Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold. So there's that word Matthew keeps using, right? To say, look at this. Here's something unexpected. A ruler come, came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So here we are introduced to a man Matthew describes as a ruler. Mark and Luke tell us his name is Jairus, and Mark adds that he was a ruler of the synagogue. So he's not just a ruler in town, he's a ruler of the local church, the local religious establishment, the synagogue. And then Luke uses language that describes him in such a way that he appears to be the chief elder. So just like our church is led by a team of pastors, that synagogue would have been led by a team of elders. We also call the pastors elders here. And Jairus would have been the lead elder, the lead pastor. He presided over the council of elders there, and it was Jairus's job to arrange the services. So he was, he was this makes him the chief representative of the religious establishment. This was a respectable man. This was a prominent and powerful and wealthy man. This was a pillar in the community. But no matter how successful or religious you are, we learn here that no one can escape the miseries of a fallen, sin-filled world. This is illustrated for us in the life of Jairus who had a daughter. Luke tells us she's his only daughter. And that she was about 12 years old. Now in those days, 12 years and a day in Jewish culture meant that a girl was a woman, 12 years and a day. Uh, For boys, it was 13 years and a day. So yes, guys, girls are always ahead of us. And they always will be. In the eyes of the community here, this girl was a young woman. But Luke tells us that Jairus still called her his little daughter. Guys, this is her, this is little girl. We all know the bond that can be between a dad and a daughter. Now, this is his sweet little princess. He's his delight. And he can hardly believe it. She's gone. One commentator I read this week noted, 12 years of sunshine had turned into a shadow of death. Now we can only imagine being a prominent man, being a wealthy man, he must have gone to the best physicians, but no one could help. Being a religious man, he must have searched the scriptures. He must have cried out to God. He must have begged others to pray. But there was no relief. She only got worse. And we can only imagine loving her as he did. The questions that must have racked his soul. Why, God? I mean, she's only 12. She's my little girl, my only girl. Why are you doing this? Jairus had done all that he could do for her, except one thing remained. 
He still had one thing that he could do. He could humble himself and come to Jesus, but he would have to humble himself. To go public with his faith in Jesus, that would have been such a huge deal for a man like Jairus. I mean, remember, he represented the religious establishment in Capernaum. They hated Jesus. He knew what his fellow elders were accusing Jesus of, drunkenness, gluttony, a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer who cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. This was a man they would soon decide deserved only one thing, a cruel death. Jairus knew exactly what his fellow elders thought of Jesus. He knew what it would cost him if he was gonna go public with his faith in this man. But Jairus had a desperate need And that desperate need drove him to Jesus. He was at a breaking point in his life. He couldn't be stopped. He couldn't hide his faith anymore. He'd cast all his reservations aside and he would run to Jesus. Despite all the controversy, he would fly to Jesus. He would fall at Jesus' feet. He would kneel before him in reverence and respect. Jairus' need drove him to Jesus. And maybe you're here today feeling that same need pressing on you, driving you to Jesus. You've tried everything else. You you don't know what else to do. There's nowhere else to go. There's no one else to go to. There's only Jesus. You know who he is. You know what he can do. And you know, you you know he might not change your circumstances, but you know he's the only one who can. He's the only one that can. Your great need is pressing you to Jesus. You're at a breaking point in your life. You can't hold back anymore. And the call of this passage is, yes, fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus, fall down before him, and cry out, Gracious Lord, incline thine ear. My request vouchsafe to hear. Hear my never-ceasing cry. Give me Jesus, else I die. Run to Jesus. Friends, true faith seeks out Jesus, and true faith always finds Jesus. Jesus is there for us, just as he was there for Jairus. The ruler of the synagogue found Jesus and he opened his heart to him. He made his request known to God. He said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And then these wonderful words in verse 19, small seemingly action, but oh, the hope this must have filled Jairus' heart when he saw this, verse 19, and Jesus rose followed him with his disciples. Jesus went with him. Friends, that's the deepest desire of every true believer. We just want to be with Jesus. We just want to have Jesus come with us. In life and in death, we just want Jesus to be with us. Remember the thief on the cross, he pleaded with Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus assure him? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's it, friends. That's what we want, Jesus with us. 
That's all we really need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things will be added unto you. Jesus with us, that's what we need. And that's the portrait we begin to see being painted here of Jesus, compassionate, kind with us. Scene number two. Scene number two. The march to Jairus' home all of a sudden is abruptly interrupted by a woman and not just any woman though, this is a woman in desperate need as well. She's a, she's really, she's a walking tragedy. If you look at verse 20, Matthew belabors to make this point. He says, and behold, so there's that word again. Look at this. Here's something surprising that's happening again. And behold, I mean, you get this idea from Matthew. This is just happening in Jesus' life all the time. Surprising things and people and needs are showing up everywhere. Behold, a woman, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Stop there. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So this is not just a, a temporary malady that she's experiencing. This is, a, this is more than a decade of suffering. A 12-year-old girl, and now a 12-year-old malady. Jairus' daughter had given him 12 years of sunshine. That whole time, this lady lived in 12 years of shadow. This discharge of blood is, is more than just a physical ailment, too. It goes further than that. Really, the horror of the disease comes from what God had stated himself in Leviticus 15. God's own law, Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27, declares, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, Listen to this, all the days of the discharge, all those long 12 years, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. What does this mean? Well, it means every bed on which she lies, Scripture says, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches her, yeah, her and what else? Anything she touches shall be unclean. What this means is that this woman lived in perpetual uncleanliness, which means she's excommunicated from church. She's not allowed to go to synagogue. What else does this mean? It means no one is going to touch her. It means no one is going to live in the same house as her. It means if she's married, he probably divorced her and took the kids because no one can touch what she touches. She's unclean, which means... She's all alone. I mean, through COVID, we had a few weeks where we couldn't be together. She's had 12 years without being able to be with God's family or anybody else. She was a social and a spiritual outcast. And spiritually speaking, we should look at this woman and see something of ourself in her. For what did the prophet Isaiah say? That all our righteousness are what? Like filthy rags. The language is bloodied, soiled rags. A few chapters earlier, Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from God and your sins have hid his face from you 
So in one sense, we can all identify with this woman. We are all unclean sinners. We are in a desperate place, just like she was. She had no temple worship. She was barred from worshiping God with his people. She was unclean. She was cut off, and yet still, she had heard the reports that there was a man traveling through the area who could heal the sick, and he could cleanse even lepers, and he could make the lame leap, and so this desperate, desperate woman, she, she makes her way to Jesus. She's like Jairus in this opinion, and, and, and you wonder if this is why Matthew has put their stories together, because nothing is going to stop this woman from getting to Jesus now, not once she's heard about him. And then verse 21 tells us she's thinking to herself the whole time, if only I touch his, if only I touch his garment, I, I will be made well. The Greek here is just this present continuous, it's like she just keeps saying this over and over, if only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. And so you get this picture of her, she's trying to get through the crowd, she's, she's touching people, she's making them unclean, but she can't be stopped, she's got to get to Jesus. And she just keeps telling herself over and over, if, if I can only touch his garment, I'll be made well, and so risking the punishment and risking the same, she struggles through until she finally she can reach out and she just touches that tassel, just the edge of his robe. And then I love verse 22, try to imagine this. Immediately Jesus turns, immediately he turns and looks at her, and, 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 and Mark and Luke say that, that Jesus felt power leave him in that moment. So here, I just imagine, here is all sufficiency, Jesus Christ, he's got it all. He's got it all in him. All of a sudden he feels, there was a need I just met. There was a need I just met, where was it? And he turns around and he looks and he sees her and she just must have been looking up in his face. He sees her and he says, take heart, daughter. Friends, this is the only time in scripture that Jesus looks at a woman personally and calls her daughter. Why would he choose that? Why would he say that to her? Every word matters in your Bible. Why does he say that to her? because this woman has had no family or relationship for 12 years. And he tells her the things she needs to hear most. You have a family. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Here again, we're given such a tender portrait of deep, powerful portrait, and yet tender portrait of our Lord. Scene number three. This camera shifts back to Jairus. He's been standing there this whole time. He's with her in all of this. Remember, remember Jairus, so his, his daughter's dead, so, so he's been waiting on Jesus. And you can only imagine the con conflicting feelings he's experiencing through all this. I mean, he just saw this woman healed, and it, it's amazing, and it's beautiful, and yet his, his little sunshine, his daughter is at home dead, and he's just, he really just wants to get Jesus home to touch her and see, will she rise? Will she, will she come back? And so he's just wanting to get there and be with his daughter. Jesus had agreed to go. It must have been hard for Jairus to wait. And maybe, maybe you've had times like this in your own life when you're in a desperate situation and you feel you need answers from God or you need him to act. But he's making you wait. He's tearing. Waiting is one of the hardest parts of being a Christian. 
Because we know, we know the heart of God. And so we wonder, if you're all powerful and you're all good, why are you making me wait? Waiting is hard, but it is necessary because every Christian who has walked the Christian life through any trial will tell you, we learn more through trials than we do through times of prosperity. Don't we season saints? It's an interesting thing. We learn in scripture that afflictions are one of the most familiar ways God draws us to himself. The Puritans would talk about this often. They would talk about the the means that God uses to bring us to himself, and they would talk about the things you might list off, prayer, Bible reading, the preaching of God's word, maybe reading good books or something like that about the Lord, but they would always list afflictions as well, which seems out of place in one sense, but it is a means he uses. God afflicts his people in order to bring us to himself. And that's where some of you are today. Afflicted, waiting on God in your trial. And I would invite you to see, dear friends, the mercy of God. He's drawing you near. He may be doing a hundred other things, a thousand other things. But one thing, he's drawing you near. Well, finally, the wait is over. Verse 23, Jairus arrives with Jesus at his house. And we're told they find flute players and a crowd making commotion there. This house is in great tumult. There's weeping. Luke implies that they're beating on their chest. This is how they dealt with with death back then. The flute players, Matthew mentions, uh, they weren't like instruments like we think of today in the orchestra or whatever with your little flute. They were these shrill instruments that made this piercing sound. And so there would have been these professional wailers there, these women who were paid to lead the procession in mourning, wailing and screaming and yelling. And, and then these flutes would come by and exasperate the tumult of sorrow. Just, you know, kind of just piercing their screeches out there. And, and this is the way that their, their, their culture dealt with death. Death was chaos. Death was just this unknown disaster that strikes you. And so they would respond with this kind of chaotic response. And the whole house is in disarray. And there's weeping and there's wailing and there's piercing instruments. And it's utter chaos. And then Jesus entered the situation. And I, I love this in verse 24. He just says, go away. It's like dad coming home. Quiet down. (laughs) Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now Mark and Luke make very clear, she's dead. She has died. It's common to refer to someone who has died as sleeping, but Jesus is saying, "I I can raise her. He's signaling that. We're told they laughed at him. I love this. They laughed at him, but then we're told, but when the crowd had been put outside, so I love that. They laugh at him. Doesn't stop him. He's in charge. He gets them out. They laugh at him. He puts them outside. Verse 25, and when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, which by the way, by the way, in touching her, here Jesus is exposing himself again to uncleanliness. 
Anyone who touches a corpse was immediately unclean. But the thing about Jesus is, is that when the unclean touch Jesus, he doesn't become unclean, they become clean. And so he touches her, he takes her by the hand, and the girl arose. Now listen, it's, it's such a powerful thing here, and yet Matthew portrays it so simply. It's really amazing. There's no dramatic action here, right? Like Jesus does not stretch himself on her three times like Elijah did. He doesn't put his eyes on her eyes and his mouth on her mouth and stretch out like Elisha did. No, all he does is touch her hand. And Mark tells us that he, he gives a brief word of command. It's so simple, Talithia kumi. It means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Literally, it's, it's like little lamb. It's, it's in vernacular, it would have been like, little one, little one. You could almost hear him calling her like she's asleep. Little one, rise up. Time to get up. Taking her by the hand. She rises. Wow. In verse 26, the report of this went throughout all of the district. I like how Mark says it. Mark says it. They were astonished. Literally, he says, they were astonished with great astonishment. <laughs> I like it. Mark's like, they were astonished. No, it's more than that. It was, uh, I don't know a better word. Uh, great astonishment. You know, it's like, I just got to make this better somehow. Because there were healers in those days, but there was nothing like this. Death does not give up its captives. Death does not give up its captives, but... Death gave up this captive because the Lord of life commanded so. Jesus has authority even over death. All right, so that's the three scenes of this passage. What an incredible passage. I want us to think about the portrait it's painting of Jesus. What is God wanting us to see? I hope you're already starting to see Jesus through this, but let me crystallize some of it for you here. Just two things I want to focus in on about Jesus. All right, so here it is. Number one, Jesus is accessible. Accessible. I try to make this in the most plain language I can. Jesus is accessible. By this, I mean, did you notice how Jesus just makes himself available in all these stories? He's not up in some ivory tower. He's not behind castle walls, you know, enthroned in some royal room. He's not cloistered away in a religious monastery. There's no hierarchy to get to Jesus. You don't have to submit your request to the claims department, Thomas, who will forward it on to Peter, who might consider giving it to Jesus. Like, there's none of that. You see what, I mean, do you see this in the story? Jairus just came to Jesus and knelt before him. The woman with the flow of blood, she was able to approach Jesus from behind and just reach out and and she could touch him. He He was right there with them accessible to them. And, and, and this is the essence of the incarnation, right? God with us. There's a real earthiness to that with us. John chapter one says he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent with us. That means he walks in our streets. He goes through our villages. He walked dusty roads. Jesus attended synagogue. He went to church, guys. And then people had him over for dinner. Can you imagine? Hey, Jesus, what you doing after synagogue? Wanna come over? Lamb chops? Honey, did you clean up the house? I mean, got Jesus coming over. He just did life with people. Right? 
Remember the story in Matthew chapter 19? I love that story. All these parents bring their kids to Jesus and the disciples are, are like, you know, they're trying to live big and pretend they're big. They're like, Jesus is important. No kids, please, no pictures. No pictures, no kids, no come up. Get away, shoo, shoo, shoo. And what's Jesus say? He says, let the little children come to me. Suffer them not, right? Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then, do you remember what he did after that? He laid his hands on each of them. It's just right there with them. Jesus was accessible. He was available to people. He was the master of the world. He's the creator of the universe. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And yet we see him in the gospels just walking down the rolling hills of Galilee, spending time with people, mingling in the crowds. And, and this is just something, listen, to I, we can't miss when we look at all these grand miracles and these awesome displays of incredible power. We need to be wowed and amazed by it all, but don't miss that it's all happening right there in the midst of real people with real problems. Jesus is accessible, and friends, he's still just as accessible to us today. Yes, he's in heaven. Yes, he's at the right hand of the Father. But that's a good thing, because that means that you don't have to make a line in the crowd to get to Jesus. Now we can all come to Jesus with all our problems at the same time. And through the Spirit, we have no less access to him than they did in that day. In fact, we have even more so because through his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus has made a way for us. He has opened up a way for sinners and sufferers like you and me to approach his very throne of grace. Right, so Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, friend, are you here suffering today? Are you suffering? Are you hurting are you broken? Are you overwhelmed? Dear friend, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with confidence draw near. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is a sympathetic high priest. He is 100% accessible and available to you. Come to him and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But maybe you're the, you're the one who's just like, I hear you, Jace, but listen, you don't know my life. It is a mess. It's a wreck. I'm embarrassed to come to Jesus. This sin that I'm dealing with, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. I, I can't come to Jesus. And if that's you, I'd, friend, listen, we get it. Many of us have been there before, but, but let me direct your attention to the example we're given in Jairus and in this woman. They came to Jesus, but listen, they didn't have their acts together, right? Who was Jairus? Jairus was a member of the opposition party. He was an enemy to Jesus, and yet he came. And this woman, she was unclean. These two didn't have their life together. Remember, she's making her way through a crowd. She's making a whole people, a bunch of people unclean. I mean, she's kind of acting selfishly, but she's so desperate for Jesus. She so believes that he'll make it all okay. And part of the point is, is that we need to remember we can just come to Jesus as we are. 
He welcomes us as we are. We don't have to pull everything together. All we need to come to Jesus is a lot of need and a little faith. That's all we need. Again, Jairus and this woman are such an encouragement to us in this way because you know, Jairus had faith. He had faith, as Richard pointed out to us, faith to have Jesus just touch his daughter and be healed. And yet, he didn't have faith as strong as the centurion who said, you don't need to come. All you need to do is speak the word and my servant will be well. So he had faith, but it wasn't as strong as the centurion's. But then here, this woman, this poor woman, suffering woman, I think she had even smaller faith. I mean, yes, she went to Jesus, and praise God, that's great, but she was too afraid to reveal her uncleanness. She was too afraid to go public with her faith about Jesus. She was too afraid to come in before everybody and say, this is my need. No, this woman came behind Jesus, trembling, just trying to touch his garment. But she came. But she came, and Jairus came, and that's the point here. With just a little faith, they came. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said about the weak faith of this woman. He wrote, let us store up in our minds this history. It may perhaps help us mightily in some hour of need. Our faith may be feeble. Our courage may be small. Our grasp of the gospel and its promises may be weak and trembling. But after all, the grand question is, Do we really trust only in Jesus? Do we look to Jesus and only to Jesus for pardon and for peace? If this be so, it is well. He that only touches the hem of Christ's garment shall never perish. Friend, come to Jesus. Weak though your faith may be, only touch his garment and you will do well. Jesus is accessible. The second thing we learn here though about him is that Jesus is able. He's able. Not only is he accessible to us, but then he is able when we bring our problems to him. The miracles we've been studying in chapter 8 and 9 are are all amazing stories to study, but these miracles are supposed to do more than just amaze us. It's not ultimately about the miracles. All these miracles point beyond themselves. Each reveal Jesus' authority. Each reveal his power over a specific sphere of reality. And so we've seen his, his authority over sickness, his authority over nature, that even storms obey his will. His authority over the supernatural, demons flee at his word. His authority over sin, he forgives sin. And then all of it climaxes in this story of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. Even death obeys Jesus. And what's at stake here, though, is is more than just the relief of these people that he heals. All of these are only symptoms. They're just symptoms of a sinful, fallen world. Disease, demons, and death are not marks of the world that God has made them, but are marks of the world that has been spoiled by sin. And yet, what's happening in this story, what's happening in all these stories is, is something is changing. Jesus has come on the scene. The Messiah is here, and he's come proclaiming the kingdom of God, and with it, the rule of heaven. 
And so through these various miracle stories, Jesus is serving notice to all who have disease and demons and death. He's saying, your days are numbered. You know what Jesus is doing in these passages? He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's serving notice that the reign of sin and death are over. The portrait we see of Jesus here is that of the divine warrior and the true king who is challenging and vanquishing the powers of darkness. The kingdom of God is present in Jesus and he has all authority. And notice, notice this too, in all these stories we've been studying and all these miracle stories, Jesus, what's Jesus doing? He's confronting an utterly helpless situation. A situation beyond all human capacity, all human ingenuity. Matthew's been stretching this, stressing this point, the helpless case of the leper, the storm that, that threatened to sink even seasoned sailors, two demon-possessed men who were so fierce no one could pass that way, and now Jairus coming with asking the impossible, can you raise my dead daughter? These were all hopeless situations, each a circumstance beyond human capacity, and yet in each encounter, the one with authority over every spear comes vanquishing the ancient enemies of mankind. He brings the saving power of God to those in desperate situations. Friends, the point of the here is Jesus is able. There's just no problem too big for Jesus. There's just no threat too fierce for Jesus. There's just no, too, uh, no enemy too great for Jesus. Even death he can conquer. So the message for us as friends is whatever you're facing, whatever has brought you to the end of yourself, whatever you're facing that is beyond your capacity, take heart. It is not beyond the capacity of Jesus Christ. It is not beyond Jesus. It doesn't matter how helpless your situation appears to you, and I, and I don't make light of any of them. My point is, is they do not fall outside the portrait of Jesus' authority. So friends, put your life, put your trial, put your greatest fear, whatever it is, put it up against the portrait of Jesus. It's not beyond Jesus. You know where it is? It's under him. It's under his sovereign reign. And as we've seen, Jesus doesn't just possess authority. Jesus exercises it on behalf of those who call on him, on those who come to him for help. And, and listen, he does so with a goal. He does so with a goal here. He's not just solving problems. Jesus has a higher goal than that. Jesus' goal is ultimately to bring us into the presence of God. He wants us to know God. He wants us to trust God. That you might find peace that surpasses all understanding. Listen, this is really important to remember in this passage here because while Jesus healed this woman in this story and while he raised Jairus' little daughter from the dead, remember this, one day that little daughter is going to grow up, get old, and she's going to die again. And this woman, one day she's going to contract something that she's not healed from. So even though we see Jesus has the authority over death, he can conquer death, we see here also, we're reminded here also, he has not banished it yet. Sickness and trials and fear and death are not yet banished from this life. So don't misread these chapters. They do not tell us, follow Jesus and your life will be trouble free. That's not their message. Here's what they tell us. 
They tell us that none of these things will have the last word in the lives of God's people. Because Jesus Christ has invaded the domain of trial and sickness and death, and he has triumphed over them. And because he did so, we have access to God, grace to help in time of need, and the assurance that Jesus reigns over our entire lives, and therefore he can work everything together for our eternal good. So in conclusion, I I want to land us on the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here we stand, and we can do no other. All these miracle stories, and not the least the one we read today, they all point forward to the greatest miracle of all. They point beyond themselves to the ultimate triumph of Jesus over sin and death. That is his triumph of them on the cross and through his resurrection. In our story today, we see Jesus' authority over death. He has that, and he exercises it for this little girl. But we should ask ourselves coming out of this, okay, great, Jesus has that authority, and Jesus exercised it for her, but what assurance do I have that he'll exercise it for me? What hope do I have that he'll overcome the greatest problem I have in my life, which isn't my sickness or my trial, but is in fact those things underneath it, my own sin? What assurance do I have that he'll save me from that? We see him saving all these peoples in chapters 8 and 9, but what hope do we have that he'll save us? And here it is, our hope is not in what he might do or what he will do, but our hope is in what he has already done on the cross and through his resurrection. That's what these miracles point forward to, and at the same time, they point us back to. Not to look for a miracle for ourselves, but to look to Jesus. You see what this passage does, friends, is sometimes I take my kids by the face and, and I lift their eyes to look at me in the eye so that I can tell them, son, daughter, look at me. I love you. And this passage takes us in the, kind of in the hands of God, the son, daughter. Look to Jesus. Trust me. Believe in me. Hope in me. Son, daughter. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have inspired Scripture. That in your word we find instructions on how to live, many passages about what we should and should not do, what's right or wrong. But then you give us passages like this one too, that just show us Jesus. Help us to see him like we sang this morning in all his glory. Help us to see Jesus accessible and able compassionate, powerful, kind, and authoritative, and our only hope.
and all our help. We look to Jesus. We pray this in his mighty and powerful and saving name. Amen. Amen.